Good afternoon and welcome to Developing a Multifaceted Patient Matching Strategy to Fuel Interoperability, a Health System CIO Media Inc. production sponsored by Mediquant. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Health System CIO, and I will be your moderator today. We're looking forward to your participation. You can send in questions or comments at any time in the Q&A box, and we'll take those later in the program. Just so you see how we're going to spend our time today, first we're going to go about 35, 40 minutes with our main panel discussion featuring Tony Ambrosi, SVP, Chief Information and Digital Officer with Baptist Health South Florida, Audrius Polakaitis, CIO and AVP of Health Information Technology with the University of Illinois Hospital and Health Sciences System, and Kel Poltz, Chief Clinical Officer with Mediquant. So let's jump right in. Tony, let's start with you. Can you give us an overview of your organization and your role? Of course. Uh, first of all, thank you for having me here. So I'm the Chief Digital Information Officer. You said that's a mouthful. Um, <laughs> I was brought into Baptist about two years ago um, to drive the digital transformation, first and foremost, uh, for the system. Baptist um, has always, by the way, Baptist is a, Baptist South Florida, Health South Florida is a 12th hospital system in South Florida, 25, 26,000 uh, employees um, serving a lot of folks um, and very well loved in the community. And um, it has enjoyed for many, many, many years a very uh, forward-looking leadership with the uh, executive steering committee and the board that, that looked at uh, the things around the technology and digital and digital experiences as something very important for the future of Baptist, in addition to continuing the type of quality care and compassionate care and welcoming care that we talked about just before this, uh, that we have been uh, known for. Very good, Tony. Thank you. Audrius? Uh, good morning. Good afternoon to all. Again, thanks also for this uh, opportunity. So uh, my name is Audrius Polakaitis, Chief Information Officer at the University of Illinois Hospital and Health Sciences System, also going with the marketing name of UI Health, given that the other name is a mouthful. <laughs> um, fundamentally, we are a university academic health system, uh, classic university health system uh, in that respect. We are a patient care delivery organization surrounded by seven health science colleges. So really three missions that we focus on, those being research teaching and patient care. And of course, uh, those missions tend to blend together with each other. The vast majority of my time is spent in the patient care uh, part of the organization, delivering all the infrastructure systems, services um, that are used by our clinicians, caregivers, and support staff uh, as we serve our patients um, and their families. As an organization, we have a large focus on community, on community engagement, on, on disparities, essentially, and, and dealing with this question of health equity. Thanks. Very good, Audrius. Thank you. Kel? Hi, uh, Kel Paltz from Mediquant. So I want to thank everyone for, for joining today uh, for the webinar to start with. I'm the Chief Clinical Officer at Mediquant and the Vice President of Government Strategy. I oversee our client services group, um, and also I'm the Chair of our Health Regulatory Committee. Um, at Mediquant. So Mediquant itself has been in business since 1999, um, uh, leading uh, the active archive space 
uh, specifically around healthcare um, activities. So HR payroll, uh, clinical ERP, we, we kind of, anything you've got in your healthcare system, we, we put in an active archive. And I think the difference here is uh, the word active. So um, uh, you need to be able to do everything in our system, basically that you were doing your legacy system um, to keep all those things up. So MediQuant, uh, started out, I think our flagship product really is DataArc, uh, which is um, used for both uh, inpatient and outpatient systems. Our focus is our customers and uh, making sure that, that not only do we service them from the technology perspective, but uh, uh, the compliance perspective as well. So we recognize um, as part of the active archive that we are part of the legal medical record. And so we you know, work to make sure that our, our customers um, include the data that's sitting in our system, because as you guys know, data is, is super important. Um, the value of data has increased over the last several years, so has the size of data. So we're, um, as a company, constantly looking to improve how we store, how we support our customers uh, in the market. Very good. All right. Uh, first question here, um, and there's a lot here. And Kel, I'm going to throw you under the bus and make you help us understand some of this stuff. Um, let's start with the baseline information and definitions. We're all on the same page. Um, what does the 21st Century Cures Act require that health systems provide to patients upon request? How must that information be provided and in what time frame? What constitutes the designated record set and what are the consequences of noncompliance? So um, I know you can't give us everything. You mentioned that things are over a thousand pages uh, to go through in terms of the content, but maybe just hit the highlights here. Okay, um, so let's start with the first bullet you've got on the list. Uh, 21st Century Cures Act really is an extension or an added um, uh, act to support the original HIPAA uh, compliance. So HIPAA uh, focused more on paper, it focused on the medical records, patient access at that point too, patient rights. 21st Century Cures Act then turns us and it starts looking at it a little bit different, looking at the medical record different. One, it includes the electronic version of data. Um, the patient becomes the owner of the medical record versus the provider uh, that was originally the owner of the record. The patient virtually owns it now. Um, it has an information blocking component to it. So there are very few exceptions uh, where providers cannot uh, give over a, a medical record. Um, it includes something called USCDI, which is a designated uh, focus on clinical. It's a U.S. Um, content, clinical content list of things that need to be included. Um, and release to patients. Uh, we are currently looking at uh, version three right now. Version four draft will be out um, in April, and then the final will be out for, for version four of this uh, October next year. It also includes something called the designated record set. So designated record set is, is not just focused on clinical. Designated record set expands uh, USCDI, which is focused on clinical, to include financial information, claims, um, uh, anything that a patient might need to have in their overall record that might have PHI uh, is included in the designated record set. So that's probably going to continue to expand. So some messaging, uh, things that you normally wouldn't just include in your legal medical record initially are now in this designated record set. Uh, the information blocking component that I mentioned earlier uh, it also includes not just uh, hospitals, but individual providers, uh, HIEs, and payers. So it, it broadens out what they call actors um, in, the, in the Cures Act. Um, and then another component that will come later, patient access, uh, their own access to records. So uh, 
though you may have uh, access right now, let's say to your own medical record, the main HIS system, um, this will include a broader view of getting access to records um, on their own. It, it gives them more autonomy to pull their own records out of the system. Um, and then you have kind of requirements around that. Uh, they're not, there's a lot of vagueness, I will tell you, in that that thousand pages of things um, that that is requiring groups, uh, you know, like Audrey and Tony to kind of get together, talk, talk to legal, talk to compliance. And some of it is doing some uh, analysis and evaluation of what those mean. Um, second bullet, how must that information be provided and in what time frame? So if you're storing... The, the law actually has a, a kind of a little clip in there, a little uh, bullet in there that in in the manner that the patient requests, um, but if it's available in that format. So if a patient says, I want all my, my lab results, you know, I want the dis discrete values of that, then you provide it that way. If it's something that's stored like in a document and they say, I want you to, to break it all apart, that's not really a feasible thing to do right now. So it makes it... Um, you know, you have some leeway on how you're providing that record to a patient. Timeframe, um, uh, it varies depending on what kind of record it is, the access, who actually uh, created the record. So uh, if I go to um, an organization that that was not the originator of my my medical record, they they may not provide it. They, there's an exception that they, you know, they may send me back to the originating organization. So there's a lot of little little details in there. Um, but one thing that's very clear, they've got about 30 days. Um, they only, um, you know, have to request, put in a request. They don't hear something. They can put in a second request, uh, but they've made it very easy for patients uh, to file a complaint against a provider. So about 77% of the complaints right now are against individual providers for not uh, handing over that, that legal medical record. Um, I think we, we talked a little bit about about what, what constitute the designated record set already. That is um, anything that is related to the patient record, including the financial, the claims information, anything that relates to uh, a treatment or denial of treatment. Uh, all of that content is something that can be pulled into the designated record set. Uh, the last part of um, the Cures Act or, or kind of a, a technology perspective is being able to send things through something called FIRE. So being able to send those transactions back and forth um, the designated record set will be one of those things that you're going to, they're going to need to be able to send out. Uh, and then what are the consequences of noncompliance? Um, so some of those noncompliance, obviously the clients fall under HIPAA. They've gotten very good at looking for things that uh, denials. And so the, the fines vary. They seem to be a bit arbitrary depending on the severity of the denial. So if, if a patient's requested, for example, um, one I saw they've requested information uh, it's kind of different from their dentist. <laughs> yes, dentists are included as an actor, um, but they continually ignored the request for a couple months that the dentist was fined about $100,000 uh, because the dentist also ignored the letter from uh, ONC about, hmm. um, about, you know, not providing the record. So there's some leeway in there. There's not a definite, um, but it does say for inpatients up to a million dollar fine per instance. So you've got to get really good at documenting why you did not provide a record and don't ignore any requests. Um, uh, and you've got to consistently document. So you can't have, you know, if you're going to treat all patients the same way, if you're going to say, we're not going to provide psychotherapy notes um, to patients 
because of, you know, we feel that it might be a life or physical threat um, to their safety, then you have to be consistent with that. You can't give it to one patient, not another, in other words. So consistency is important. And I will turn it back to you. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of good stuff there. I'll appreciate that. Tony, um, let's stick with this sort of question here. Um, in addition to anything Kel said, is there anything that sort of is, that you're thinking about a lot in terms of these requirements or anything you want to add on or clarify about what you see as being required uh, and being important right now? Yeah, no, I, I obviously that's a great, great uh, uh, commentary by uh, um, Kel. Um, I think it's uh, in terms of what we see is um, obviously uh, patients want to see as much information as they need to, and we want to provide it in, in, in all circumstances. And I think the question is to decide as, you know, with the way I look at it coming from the outside, it's, it's relatively simple. Great, this legislation is great from a patient perspective. Um, and, and I don't think there's any reason for providers or for uh, uh, yeah, uh, provider systems not to provide it. But from my perspective is I start with why would we not provide a particular piece of information, whether a designated set or more? Um, why would we not do it? Yes, um, to the point earlier, there may be situations where that may actually be detrimental to the patient. They read those notes and they, you know, it's it's worse for them, absolutely. But those those would be the exceptions, not the rules. So we provide the rules. Uh, now, um, so that's one thing. Now, the trick is though the information we do provide, hopefully in the most convenient and self-service 24 by seven um, uh, way possible, not by CD-ROMs. Uh, mm-hmm. That information, or, or worse, by fax. Mm-hmm. Um, that's probably, healthcare is probably the only place that's still used maybe as an industry. Uh, but agree. also, but also uh, in a way, in a format that is consumable. Um, if I look at and re- try to read those those notes, the visit summary notes, for example, is that something that would help me manage my health? Because I think that's what the the ultimate um, uh, desire is to help patients manage their health, not just manage healthcare, which is interaction with us and what we provide, but them manage health, and that's that's why that information is accurate or is important to be available. Uh, can they manage? Can they understand it? You know, in my past, you know, I'm not not going with. I didn't have major um, problems as a patient so far. Mm-hmm. Uh, but some of the notes that I read, uh, they might have been as well, might as well been in in Chinese, because probably in two pages I learned, I understood like six words, and then like fortunately they said, eh, it's probably not too bad. Don't worry about it." So okay, then I then I had to wait for the the follow up with the doctor, which. Basically, gave me that one sentence that clarified that it was okay. Yeah, yes, you have you're getting older and that sort of thing, but nothing to to worry about. Which, by the way, those notes could have had in the very top of the summary summary for the patients. You're going to be kind of okay, and the rest is for whatever reason. So right. we need to be that's the digital officer or the digital experience officer viewpoint, and how do we make all that information usable? for mm-hmm. for patients in ways that um, they can understand and they can act upon. And then from there is what is it that we can provide further? Okay, there's maybe follow-ups and 
and that sort of thing that that we need to lead to uh, the next steps. Yeah, it's a good point that uh, if we see the direction things are going in and we can go beyond the requirements, why not go go beyond in terms of a longer term strategy? Audrius, in terms of what you're seeing from the policy point of view, the specifics of um, what's required and when anything that sort of you want to touch on for your colleagues who are going to listen to this and who are listening to this um, that that has caught your eye or things that really uh, you want to focus in on. Yeah, two thoughts. I think Kel did a great job summarizing it and <laughs> some of the detail I, I learned listening to her. But, yep. you know, fundamentally, uh, number one, it's been just acknowledging it's been transformative. Right now, it's almost like Monday morning quarterbacking, right, after this has all happened. But what has happened is a greater transparency, these these quicker release times, not withholding information. Of course, there are uh, there are risks um, that that have been recognized. One of those risks being information being released to a patient before a provider has had a chance to engage with the patient. That is a classic concern you hear from clinicians, and that needs to be managed. A second risk, you know, we we hold all this PHI, we protect it, we understand our obligation for that, and I think it's reasonable for healthcare providers to to ponder what now happens when that is released to the patient. And let's say the patient is not as careful with their own information, or health IT developers or other organizations who now are using this information are not as careful, are not under the same HIPAA obligations as we are as healthcare developers. Now, you know, is there any accountability that points back to us? We hope not, given the way this is rolling out, but the origins of the data are still with you and your organization. How would you ever prove that that data was released through one mechanism versus, you know, nefariously released through your organization? So there's some questions about the, the data, its origins, sort of security, and, and the way that data is used. A second thought, Anthony, is about this broad term of EHI or electronic health information, which Kel commented on. I mean, it is far reaching, right? And and you take a look at your portfolio of systems. And and yes, we as many organizations are now, let's say, EHR centric. We're primarily EHR centric, but you still have a bunch of other things in your environment. That is all EHI. And you're now in a position to have to work with multiple vendors to develop a strategy for how are we electronically accessing and releasing this information. So for example, in our organization, we have 142 vendors that we need to interact with. And as a first step, as we were preparing for this, we sent out a survey to the 142 vendors. Of those 142 vendors, only 20 even responded to the survey, (laughs) right? So 122 blew us off, right? And of the 20 that responded, essentially it was, yeah, we're in various steps of development. We'll let you know, right? There's only a couple that were definitive in how they're going to help us as their clients comply with the spirit, right? Uh, with the 21st Century Cures Act. Of course, the electronic health record systems are on top of this, right? This is not about them. This is everything else that is not a certified EHR. So therefore, those vendors are not held to the standard. Yet we as health systems are held to the standard to, to be able to release all the EHI. So a little bit of an inconsistency, if you will, about what standard we're being held to versus the standards of the vendors and the organizations that support us. So we get historical stuff, right? And this is where I realize MediQuant and other archiving solutions play a huge role. We're ultimately going to take data of our historical systems, put them into archives, those archives need to be accessible through fire, right? Because this is this is going to be part of our strategy. 
for how we will deliver upon at least that part of the data. And then there's other data, which we don't I want to recognize. We don't really have a strategy for, for a lot of this data. This is why we're doing these surveys and trying to get information from these vendors. Yeah, so the, these are the vendors. They're you know, not the EHR, right? You got the EHR. You have companies like MetaQuant that can help you um, move data around and, and archive data and things. You sent a survey to 100 140 of your other vendors that have some data and said, hey, how are you going to help me with this? And they were like, they passed the letter around the office until somebody, nobody <laughs> wanted to deal with it. Because they're, they're, they're thinking, well, that's kind of your problem, right? Is it? Yeah. Very much so. Some, some even said, what is what is the 21st Century Cures Act? Yeah, and, and I, said, I think that's... You said call Kel. Right. You told him to call Kel. Go ahead, Kel. <laughs> I was going to say, you know, and that's, we, we took a very, so just, just how we looked at this, Audrius, you know, and I, I think we, we've touched on a little bit, but when this first came out um, and, you know, the, the 21st century cures act, the, the piece that we thought would affect us was in March of uh, uh, 2019, we started immediately um, took it to development and said, listen, it specifically says certified, um, you know, health information technology companies. And though archives don't require the certification, um, we looked at this and said, this applies to us because we have the design, you know, we have the designated record set. We have USCDI. We're part of the legal medical record. Even though we were not, um, you know, archives aren't required to be certified through ONC like an EHR is, we made the decision that we absolutely are going to be required to do this. And we are going to, if it never comes out and, and no one says, yes, you have to do it. We decided we were going to make the commitment to our, our customers that of course we're going to support this because you're going to have to pull this data out of the archive to make up that whole record. So at that point, we, we took a boot camp. Uh, three of us went through a boot camp uh, with Sequoia Project, uh, who's working very closely with ONC right now. We formed our health regulatory committee. We started looking at USCDI one, and it's just grown from there. Uh, we are, you know, successfully sending fire transactions with our government project, so we're a, a, a ahead of the game right there when it comes to the fire piece of it. Um, and so we've we've from that point been working consistently to make sure that we could support this. And I think that that is probably a bit of a differentiator when you're talking about the 142 vendors that you have out there. Um, they're not necessarily understanding whether or not or looking into whether or not they're going to need to be part of your overall um, piece of it and support you, even if they don't have to be certified. They're yep. still specifically going to be included in that group. And as a, you know, under BAA agreement, absolutely, we are an extension of you. That's how we kind of look at this. So, so we thank Metaquant, and generally, I'd say Metaquant and other archival vendors have very much understood their role um, in in this process, right? And and you know, you you very nicely described how you guys went through it. I'm sure other archival solution vendors, similar process, right? They understand that they will be the repository of information that is part of this record set that ultimately needs to be accessed through APIs, needs to be able to disclose, right? So you guys are a huge solution to part of the puzzle. And then I, I think just recognizing not everybody had such a, not everybody had such a forward thinking, um, you know, so forward thinking about this, right? Um, again, archival solution vendors generally, yes. But this is the this is the problem we face as a health system, right? That we have a couple partners that are on it that we can count on, and then everybody else, and I can't blame them because they technically are not 
uh, obligated um, to do so, right? But somehow we have this obligation because all that data is part of the designated record set. Right. Tony, uh, let me, Audrey has brought up the question, and I've heard this before, of concern on the part of health systems about what their patients do with the data they're given. Um, you're sort of wanting to advise them about some of the issues of giving data to some of these third-party apps that may be in an app store um, and maybe, you know, based out of who knows where. Um, and there's some concern, right, Audrey, about wanting to put them in a good position, maybe even some basic education about what they may or may not want to do with that data. Do you have any thoughts around that? Yeah, no, uh, absolutely. Before that, and somewhat related to it, I wanted to um, um, add a comment on um, whether patients should see or ought to see their medical data, let's say lab results or a uh, appointment results before the uh, the providers uh, have a chance to talk to them. Um, I know that I've heard that concern and I've heard it from providers and sometimes even from uh, patients. Um, and the way I look at it is, is very simple. Let's put that, that power to decide back in the hands of the uh, patient or the mm -hmm. consumer. Mm -hmm. um, yes, there are patients who prefer the to talk to their, to hear especially bad news from their provider, their clinician. Um, others, probably at the certain younger generations, find that the wrong avenue and they simply would prefer to see it in an app. I think that there is a way to map both, not just rely on Physicians say, no, no, this is us to, to deal with it. We can uh, provide that uh, uh, ability for, for patients to decide how they want to get the information and whether they need to wait for, for, that, for the provider to reach out, whatever. Now, when you, the moment you say, yeah, I'll reach out for the provider, you have to wait for four days. You know, that's an indication that's probably bad news because right. otherwise you, you would have. Uh, anyway, um, so that, that's a side. Now, on the other, your question about... Um, Yes, um, the way I look at it, uh, and as Mr. Maybe my personal view is, this is about uh, patients' data, and they're entitled to it. They can, uh, they absolutely can can have access to it. They can grab it, and they can do uh, all sorts of things with it. I think there is some education that we need to do. Uh, it's not necessarily, you know, any of us as, as providers. Uh, but some education on what this data can be, how important it is, and how can it be misused. Mm -hmm. um, it's quite often for folks um, to share incredible ad, uh, level of details, medical details on even social media. I had one of these, blah, 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 and like it's, it's, and and by the way, it's, that's their right. But it's I call uh, that it's, oversharing. It's oversharing. Oversharing. It's there, right? Uh, definitely. But also, it can be manipulated. Can be misused. Can be uh, in the wrong hands. Used as a unfair bias against the person. Uh, who knows who reads it and what they do with it, even late, years later. So I think some level of education, absolutely, we need to do when when we allow them to take it, to download it, to. Um, to forward it uh, outside, but I think it's at the end of the day, as I said, it's it's their data, and you know they 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 with the right tools and the right education, they should be able to do whatever it is in their hands. Is uh, again, is their data? 
Right, now, right. So education. I, I, would, I wouldn't want to, you know, to post my social security number and my credit card details, including the the special code on my website. But if I'm crazy enough to do it, you know, I can do it now. But very likely the credit card company will just terminate my account because that's a, But in the end, that's that's uh, something that I could do. All right, very good. Uh, Audrey, we're going to start with you. Now we talked about what's required, what has to be done. We all said, yeah, it's great. It's the patients. They should have their data. Maybe there's some caveats in there with certain sensitive data, psychiatric data, where you want to be careful. Um, And we might want to provide them with some education so they don't just go putting it on any app, but that's up to them. Okay, so we've, we've covered that. What are the challenges of doing it now? You mentioned about the hundreds of vendors. Um, and so I'm not not writing you back and filling out your questionnaire uh, and happily doing so. What are the technical challenges now of getting all this stuff together? Yeah, well, it's getting all this stuff together, right? And and you and you and you start with. Uh, hmm, so I'd say it's a it's a journey, right? Um, what you recognize it's a it's an evolution, and you're going to start with uh, you know eighty twenty rule, very much applying here. You're going to start targeting those platforms that contain the vast majority of, of your data, which in our case will be our electronic health record systems. Thankfully, our EH vendors, EHR vendors are generally well on top of this and ready to support us through that, right? So there's various mechanisms through the EHRs where you can expose that data to your patients, whether it's portals or uh, electronic, uh, other electronic means. The next thing I would look at is sort of now, now we're into the archival uh, platforms where there's a vast amount of data being maintained there too, right? That's the next thing you're going to tackle. We have started that process, are working through that process with our clinical um, with our clinical data. We've already done it with our revenue cycle data. So that'll be the next thing you tackle. And then I guess comes the other 140 out of the 142, right? Because then, it, then it's just a matter of one by one, right? Uh-huh. You got to step through it. And just like security, right? We talk about a risk-based security model. I'm very much sort of of this attitude of you won't be able to do it all at once. That's that's sort of a idealistic and unrealistic. So you got to do it based on sort of risk, right? Uh, which are which are the largest data sets? Which ones do you want to incorporate? And I I realize we're not perfect at this point, but we are working hard to try to meet the spirit of of this thing and and show progress towards achieving this ultimate goal, which I believe is a good goal. Everybody's commented on that, right? We want to expose this data, make the data available to, to the patients and to the apps of their choosings. The point of the 21st Century Cures Act was to stimulate innovation. I mean, that was the that was the intent of this and to, and to deal with this interoperability question. We're going there, but it's taking a while. The dates uh, we can argue whether the dates were too aggressive or not aggressive enough. They are what they are. They're pushing us now in a certain direction, maybe not as fast as others would like uh, to see us move, but we're going there, right? So it is just about a systematic, consistent approach um, to achieving this this goal and objective. Very good. Tony, your thoughts? Uh, no, absolutely. I think um, uh, it's you're right. Depending on each individual case, uh, where that data is, it's, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, for certain systems, maybe it's all in EHR. And that's relatively simple, unless the EHR has limitations on on how easy it is to, for people to get data out. 
Uh, sometimes it's probably more, maybe more than one EHR or maybe more than one system. You have an EHR and then you have some other things, other systems, maybe for revenue cycle. So I totally agree with Audrey. It is a, it is a journey. So, um, uh, you know, we kind of know and probably that limit is going to be expanded. What we will eventually want to share, as I said, as much as possible, unless there's a very good reason not to. Uh, but it's a journey and, you know, the, you know, if it's something that you can expose tomorrow and then something that can, can come in two weeks time and so on and so forth, gradually as much as, as, as fast as we can. Um, uh, yeah, but, you know, we should have, we all should have started. It could have started a lot earlier, you know, if we impaired into the future, but we are where we are, but, but definitely, definitely. So now, um, so. Very good. Kel. Anything you want to jump in on? I've got this. I put up the next question, which goes to some of the specific things that we could touch on. So we'll go back around with that. But, Kel, let me get your thoughts. Um, actually, I think probably one of the biggest things for us um, from an archive perspective is going to be what's on your next slide. And it has to do with um, patient matching, unique identifiers, those kinds of things. Anytime you've got a patient accessing their own record, you you have a bigger HIPAA concern than you had before. Um, or, you know, if a provider gets a list of patients, they can say, oh, well, this this guy, the third one down is the guy I'm actually looking for. You know, if you've got duplicate medical records or MPIs names, but you can't give a list to a patient, right? You have to, a patient has to only ever see their own record. And so that is certainly going to be a challenge, especially, and it's going to differ by organization. That's certainly one thing that we um, recognize because um, our customers made different decisions on how they wanted to archive, whether they merged databases, whether they did a cleanup of their MPI, mergers and acquisitions actually play into that also because some of them gave uh, new numbers to those that they acquired. Um, some of them didn't. They just said, put it in the archive and you know the provider can look at it. Some of those decisions were prior to all of this stuff coming out with the Cures Act here. And so now it's going back and looking at each of those individuals and say, okay, we're going to have to develop a strategy based on the decisions you made. So um, it, that I think is, is, it's not an insurmountable challenge, but it is a challenge um, to look at each of our customers as individual. Not one of them made the same decision on how they oh. did stuff. So that's, that's probably, I would say is our, one of our biggest focus, especially as we talk about patient access. Yeah, you're right. I think, let me interject a little bit. I think you make a, a great point about, um, and us, for example, developing uh, digital capabilities before, or sorry, uh, after the HR was implemented and, and after, um, you know, obviously we had patients, you know, the question now is how do you get them access? And in a way that you're absolutely sure this is the right Michael Smith or John Smith or whatever it is, not, you know, uh, five others in the area. Um, and sometimes that reduces the simplicity of the access as, as you, uh, as you uh, uh, validate the uh, identity. And it has to be with something that they know. Uh, unfortunately, um, with the Internet, a lot of people know about you almost everything. So it has to be something that you have, um, like access to an email or a cell phone that, uh, or a phone that you had uh, you had provided uh, before or whatever else uh, mechanism that we can. Um, so I think that that's an important one that sometimes it makes things a little bit more difficult and people say, oh, I can't get into my uh, whatever. Um, uh, but because we need to make sure absolutely that you're the, you know, 
and somewhere on the internet trying to get in, you are the really the, the owner, full owner of that data on that record. Yeah. You know, these concerns clearly existed before the 21st Century Cures Act, right? Operationally within healthcare systems, we talk about duplicate medical records, collapsing them, making sure, you know, information for a patient is not spread across multiple records. When we become aware of them, let's merge all these things together. These things, you know, definitely this is a concern, right? To have a, the integrity of the information associated with a, with a, with a patient and, and their record and their, and their health and their healthcare delivery. I, I think Kel's point is so well made that you now... This is like on steroids now, right? Because now you're sort of bringing this question, right, or this concern out of this protected group of healthcare providers that all have been through HIPAA training, all understand their obligations. Um, you know, now you're bringing it to a much broader mass uh, mass audience by exposing to patients, and then you better make sure you have it right. So, Kel, that's a, that's a phenomenal point. Like, we really got to get good with this matching. Well, yeah. this, not everybody this, would, uh, honestly, if I got a list of patients, I went to my record and I was somebody else's record. Not everybody's going to call and say, listen, guys, you got the wrong record on my record and not open it. Right. I'm a nurse. So I'm like, that's not my business. Mm-hmm. Most people if, are going to look at the record. They're going to be like, oh, I know this guy. Uh-huh. <laughs> so we, I mean, just that thought of doing something, something like that, or a patient doing that just almost makes you sick. Like, oh my gosh, we got to get this right. So yeah, it's a, it's a big deal for sure. Tony, where, where are you on the idea of an organization wide unique identifier that, that goes beyond the EHR and, and touches the other systems we talked about? Is that something you have or, or should want to work towards, or is that just not, not how you're looking at it? Well, I think it's it's something that one would want, and this is the, the case for all the industries, not just the patient. And you know, if you're in a different industry, you want to have one record uh, when one identifier for a customer of whatever kind. Right. And so that definitely would help. But just as like everywhere else, um, getting there, if you the growth was somewhat organic, and maybe you had acquisitions, and maybe you know. Um, you know, the organization didn't align very well and you had uh, different systems springing up everywhere and where they didn't didn't uh, look at the, which one is the, which system should be the true system of record. When you go into a place and you say, is this the system of record for this piece of data or is that system of record? And if you get the answer, yes, um, then you have a problem. And you talk about System of record is not supposed to be a plural, systems, you know, systems of record, you know, right. yeah, for the same piece of information. But sometimes it's it's unavoidable, like, as I said, you know, especially, you know, in certain circumstances. And the, as the long-term goal would be to have those. And by the way, it's not just about consumers. It could be about even physicians or about clearly employees. Um, but that's easier to fix, by the way, um, or whatever it is, even, you know, insurance plans that, that, that the organization takes is all the people, all the organizations in the system that deal with insurance plans, they exactly have the same uh, system of record for that. Um, and so it's, it's a great goal to have eventually um, in the, you know, that probably would be a, the next big migration kind of a focus um, in the short term. You need to probably have to be uh, practical. The goal being not necessarily to have one, but to have the ability to traverse the organization in your systems in a way that wherever that information is about that patient, you can recognize it. Um, and then that could be simply by 
you know, having translators between systems. So when you do want to say, hey, I'm looking at the HR here, but there's all that system over there that I don't know, but then the system know how to find that record over there for some sort of translation of, uh, of identifiers. Um, that may be something that you, you may want to do. Audrius, what are your thoughts, sir? Yeah, you know, I keep thinking about these uh, efforts to convince our legislatures, our government about a national patient identifier. And I, I, uh, I don't understand all the political issues and legislative issues behind it. I'm a little bit stymied that we as a nation are not moving in that direction. I, I have a colleague who is uh, originally from the UK. And when you hear about, like in the UK, everybody's got an NHS number. They know it by memory, right? Just like you could rattle off your social security number. At least those of us, you know, who use that as the primary identifier when we were in college, right? Posting test results, right? You look mm-hmm. up your test result by your social security number or your exam result. So, I mean, this is fundamentally the problem. Now, th- this would this would create a platform upon which things could be unified. You still would have that internal uh, challenge of, of having to find all the instances of that patient's records within your platforms and then associate them all with that record, right? So you still have this challenge of duplicate medical records of, you know, somebody not being careful when a patient came in to see whether that patient existed or had a record at your institution. So those operational challenges, again, they existed before, they continue to exist, we need to continue to work towards it. But this idea of a national ID would would, would assist in this, mm-hmm. in this capacity. And I feel we're a little bit handcuffed in this country because of that. So it would have been great if together with the 21st Century Cures Act, this idea of a national identifier would have been sort of parallel uh, legislation, but but it wasn't. And I realize there are still substantial initiatives in place, some of them being led by CHIME, some of them being led by others, to continue to to sort of raise awareness to, to this topic. That's All right, a we very have... good point. I was Go ahead, say, very good point, Audrius. I mean, years ago, I, I would have thought, gosh, a national identifier, you know, the big brother thing, I think that was the holdup. Today, it's obvious that I agree with you. We've got to get something that's like that. That's a national identifier. Um, I think some of the holdup is who will who would own putting it together, you know, um, because we have so much competition right now with our vendors and different things that so they would have to delegate or create an organization within the government to generate that kind of stuff. But I agree with you. That would be the simplest thing for us to do is to get a national identifier and then it would take it this would not be an issue we would just get everybody would get one and uh you know they would have to work through the things all the things they've learned about the social security number on you know because there's been a lot of fraud with social security number that's why we don't actually do it but they're that you know having a system um, i was on a call for canada yesterday actually that was really interesting they were talking about um, everyone there is getting a done number for their like their region and then a, a number after it that's how they're identity, you know, getting their numbers. And I thought, gosh, that's, that's interesting. Um, Cause all hospitals have a done number, really, everybody gets one of these things. And anyway, um, I, I think that there's going to be more discussion or, on that over the next few years, just because I, I don't know how else they're going to manage some of this technology without doing something like that. All right, I, I want to get to some uh, audience questions here. Um, so let's jump right in. Uh, Cal, I think I'll put this one to you. Interoperability seems to be hinged on the sharing of patient information. Can you give a high-level understanding on the difference between HL7 and FHIR? Um, so HL7 really is is a standard. It's not just a national standard, but it's kind of an international standard of, of uh, interfacing messages. So it's very kind of very strict, certain message types, and you build it out 
fire is, I think, gives a little more flexibility, but it's still a set of standards. It, um, so you're not building the same messages. You can have like an outside or a third party. We, it's almost like a middle layer type thing that will, that will translate between one uh, message that you have, or you're, you're building your own specs for fire and someone else's specs for fire to be able to send those messages. I, I think it's more flexible. It is an HL7 basically type thing. It's just um, HL7 on steroids is the way I keep describing what it is. So um, I think there's more flexibility to it and there's uh, absolutely more potential for it um, to, uh, for people to send bigger messages, different types of messages, because HL7 by itself is somewhat restricted text, you know, whether it's a TXT, whether it's a A1 has this, you know, an A8 is this, an A, you know, not that we're not going to get away from some of those components, but I think it's going to um, expand our ability to be interoperable. You know, if I add add a final comment, oh, sorry, Tony, go ahead. No, 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 you go ahead. I I was going to say, they are technically both under the HL7 umbrella. One is we refer to as typically version 2.x, which is the old message-based, the older message-based integration. Okay, I'll call it old, old uh, message-based <laughs> integration. And then, of course, the more contemporary approach using APIs, specific fire. But, you know, one differentiating characteristic that I always think about is that HL7 2.x, it's, you're broadcasting out a bunch of stuff all the time, and then the receiving system can choose to listen and okay. save it and store it or not, right? So it's a message-based integration. And with fire and APIs, we get rid of this chattiness, and if you want something, you specifically ask for that, right? And you make you make a request, and you get an answer to your request. So, sort of a fundamental architectural um, change. I, you know, flexibility, again, flexibility. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I was going to say, simplistically, you know, uh, HL seven is like the old EDI, and, and we used to use in the uh, financial industry, and then the fire, at least the current or the upcoming version is more like web services. So I think standards are important, but I think also, uh, you know, outside this area or this, this industry, we've been using web you know, APIs that are not standardized very, very successfully for a very long time. As long as they're implemented well, they're well-documented, the semantics is clear. So I would take a well-defined and implemented API of any sort with modern technologies, whatever it is, over a standard that doesn't, that has more limitations. And because, you know, vendors had, oh, we need to stay within the standard. So we need to wait for the standards body to spend another seven years debating how that, that format has to be. So my two cents. Good. Those are good cents. We appreciate that. All right. Next question. How should a provider deal with a personal health record supplier? who wants EHR access on behalf of patients. The supplier is not bound by HIPAA and can only attest to properly identifying a patient and giving them appropriate data. Audrey, I'm going to put you on the spot for that one. What are your thoughts there? It's, it's the essence of the problem, right, that we were um, talking about earlier. So first of all, right, the, the request needs to come from the patient, not from the, not from the supplier, right? So, so organizations have processes which patients can ask for this and then they identify this particular PHR or this particular supplier, right? So the relationship is a little bit different, right? It's not about the supplier asking for the data. It's about the patient asking for their data. And of course, then you make sure you have the right uh, authentication, right? The right controls in place to make sure you're only providing that patient's data and you're only authorized to provide 
that patient's data. But then what happens after that, right? It's a little, it's a little bit out of your hands, right? And, and we, we referenced this, right, about educating the consumer, making sure they know and they are an educated consumer about whom they're sharing their data with and what that company is obligated to do or, or more, more specifically not to do uh, with, their, with their data. So I think this is the part, Anthony, you referred to, right? This is the part of this regulation that usually gets a little bit of a reaction from people. Like we take all this care to protect this stuff. Are we, you know, and and the way Tony put it, right? You you can post anything you want, right? This is your choice. But just to make sure our patients are educated consumers and understand what they're doing. If they then choose to do so, that's on them, right? But we want to make sure our patients understand what they're doing. But for Tony, for this for this question, it's a simple no, it sounds like. This is the, the PHR supplier who wants EHR access on behalf of patients. Uh, but to Audrey's point is, um, has the patient uh, granted that permission? It doesn't sound if like not, it. Well, if not, no. Um, mm-hmm. So on, on what basis? And, you know, unless it's the, I don't know, some subpoena thing, I would probably probably say no. Obviously, I'm not a, I'm not a lawyer, but now with it, where I think the more cases um, I think is where the patient indeed wants to provide that information, mm-hmm. and we talked about it uh, before. I think there are technologies on the horizon where that process can be a lot more um, secure and, and and maybe with encrypted, maybe with blockchain, in, in ways that the consumer can go and say. This blob, okay, this vendor can have it for this purpose. There's a contract around it and there's an expiration around it, yeah. which would make it a lot easier. I think the biggest question is, is it for the continuation of care for the patient? I mean, they sign a statement right now that says the record can be shared with the payer. It can be shared you know, with other providers because it's a continuation of their care and they're part of the care team. If this group is not part of the care team, then I would say they have to absolutely sign um, a release. The patient needs to sign the release for it to go specifically. I agree with Tony. I can't imagine any other legal way around that. I think that the the rules are very specific about who gets access to it. And as a patient, I know you guys have all been patients too. We signed the release, um, but the release specifically, you know, when with your records, it's to people that are going to be your part of your care team. So if they're not defined and designated as part of the care team for that patient, then I'm with you guys. Absolutely. I wouldn't send it. All right. I'm going to pose a final question. We're we're just about out of time. Um, And I'll I'll phrase it this way. It seems like, you know, we can do these things. We want to do these things. uh, But to me, the the rub is going to come in on the timing. Um, And, you know, things are still being worked on. Uh, Cal, I don't know what the you know some of the deadlines are, but things are still being worked on. Audrey has talked about still working through this process and having to do it in a risk-based way, which makes sense, which means you can't do them all at once. Let's prioritize and work the list. What about when we get into situations where requests come in, we're under the requirements uh, of the the guidelines and the, and the law, and requests come in, we want to reply, uh, you know, respond. And there's a timing issue of, well, we did, that was the 82nd vendor 
that we need some data from. And we didn't get to that one yet. And I have 30 days to reply and I, you know, to the patient and I just sent, they ignored another letter from me or whatever you might. So the question of the timing, the penalties and getting this stuff done, do we see that as an issue on a case by case basis where perhaps in certain scenarios, we're not ready to reply in the required time frame? And what's your best advice to dealing with that? Tony, I'm going to start with you. Um, I think we have a model here, which is the uh, when uh, European the European Union introduced GDPR, one of the uh, requirements was the ability for um, a UA consumer or customer to get any information, not just medical, any information from a vendor. And I think a lot of folks were not necessarily prepared for all of that, although despite the fact that the law was had been uh, discussed. And so everybody did was, okay, we're working on the, the, the system where, yeah, you can go in and get it yourself in a way that is, is very easy and it is as, as complete. But in the meantime, we're going to do our best to get as much as we can, as fast as we can, even if sometimes that means uh, some sort of uh, uh, manual approach. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't see that in any other, any other option. And frankly, the painful of that manual approach for the for the company, it's probably we're gonna, is going to drive the is a, a huge incentive to do the automated the self service. Audrius, your thoughts about the timing of this responding to requests in the required time when you're not sort of fully finished getting ready. Your Honor, I refuse to answer that question with fears that I may incriminate myself. <laughs> no, I, I, okay, so so it's it's a real problem. I love I love Tony's answer because that that is the way you're going to approach this, right? Um, I think maybe it's naive, but my optimistic hope is that you engage with the person um, posing the request. And part part of the rules suggests that you know it needs to be reasonable in how you can present that. Mm-hmm. If we can't if we can't do this through automated uh, fashions as Tony has described, you know, there's always a way to extract the data and bring it forth. Now, the question of how usable it is maybe comes into play. But there is a way to do this if someone is really uh, motivated. So you're going to do your you're going to do your best on that 80 mm-hmm. seconds, on that 80 second yeah. vendor. Right. I think the, the big the big concern some of us have is, look, if these are legitimate patients with legitimate needs, you know, happy to work with it. I think there's also a little bit of concern that um, I'm not sure how what the data shows that there are some organizations or individuals that might be purpose to be going after health systems, right, and, and trying to uh, profit from from this. Um, you know, from going through a little exercise of asking things that may not be reasonable and may not be within that initial scope. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. We'll see what happens with that. Kel, we'll give you the last word. Your uh, best document, piece of advice. Document, document, document. I think that you lay out your plan. Um, you stick to your plan. And when you have an exception, like you guys are talking about, where you have to pull it manually because it, the data is either stored weird or you don't have right, you know, access to it immediately and it's going to be a delayed you document 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 the reason for that and when you you know come under fire and get an audit you've got everything lined out and they can't say that you didn't give every reasonable probably above reasonable effort to accommodate that request all right that's some great advice there and i cannot believe we're we're out of time already regarding continuing education you could use the final slide in this deck you'll get an email when the on-demand recording is ready for viewing. If you want to sponsor an event, an event with us, you can reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team and go to our website to register for upcoming panels. With that, I want to thank our tremendous panel, Tony Ambrosi, 
Audrius Polakaitis and Kel Poltz, and I want to thank MetaQuant for sponsoring and making this valuable educational session possible, and I want to thank you for attending. And with that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Audrius and Tony Anthony. Have a good day. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.